out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Miles Copeland. He of the police fame and also IRS Records, who featured people like the Buzzcocks, R.E.M., the Cramps, young, fine young cannibals, as well as the Wall of Voodoo, and much, much more. The big thing is... He has a book out that's just been published. It's titled Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. This has just come out on the publisher titled Jawbone Press, available from all good bookshops as well as online, obviously. Anyway, this is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat, which I edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, well, writing the book. Miles, it's over to you. Well, I had actually been writing for a while and then kind of stopped. And uh, I got like, maybe it was, it was more of a marketing book. You know, I was, uh, my, my view was, you know, I, I kind of didn't like the idea of a pure memoir, which was kind of, I don't know, it was, sounded a bit egotistical. Like, you know, this is what I did and, you know, isn't that great or whatever. So I, 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 I made a book. I, I was writing basically more like a, a motivational or marketing book right and then a lawyer told me that uh you know when the lockdown thing started happening he said well you should really think of doing a memoir first and that kind of rested in my head and then when i got kind of stuck at home i thought well you know what i'll just start writing and see what happens <laughs> and before i knew it you know a couple months go by and i've written a memoir yes so uh, i incorporated the marketing ideas in that and uh, I guess I've kind of ended up with, you know, starting in the Middle East and growing up in Beirut and all that sort of thing, you know, and adding that to the what I learned through the music business. And uh, that's how I ended up with doing a memoir. Yes. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the M word marketing, because because I can remember you quite well in the 80s. We never met, by the way. So you but you, you know, you were definitely there and around. And there, there was a story I always remember, um, because at the time, you know, if you remember, you probably do. 70, um, 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in, then Ronald Reagan, then we had the Falkland War. And British industry isn't that great at that moment. And you're, you're really working the police with great kind of vigor and excitement. So they're they're steamrolling. And, and, and this is a story which is only 40 years old, so you might be able to correct me if I've got any of it wrong. But I remember this story that you'd phoned up some British motorbike company and said, look, I've got this amazing band, give us motorbikes, we'll sit on them and you'll sell lots more. And they just looked a bit vacant and you went, forget it. I'll just go to Japan, I'll say, look guys, I've got this band, give us motorbikes, we'll sit on them, you'll sell loads more. And they like, they said, oh, I'll three for the band, one for you. And it was like, is that a story that I've kind of... Well, it's actually true, but it, it, it started a little earlier than that. It was when I was working with the Climax Blues Band. Right. I thought, well, you know, they were from Stafford, you know, and I thought, well, it would be a good idea to have a British motorbikes and linking with the Climax Blues Band. It sounded kind of like a cool image, you know, and uh, I went to triumph and norton and bsa and they basically looked at me like i had two heads and said well you know we can't make any more than we already have and i said well don't you realize that the japanese will basically gonna clean your clock if you don't 
you know, beef up, you know, and they kind of looked at me like I was crazy. So a few years later, when I had the police and I had sort of the same idea of like, you know, well, you know, let's get some motorcycles. I thought, well, by that time, of course, most of the British motorcycle companies had gone broke or mm-hmm. disappeared. So I went to uh, Yamaha and of course they welcomed me with open arms, it gave me whatever I wanted, you know, so I, I thought this was great. So Sting got a couple of motorcycles and my brother Stuart and, and Andy Summers and I got some as well. So we ended up with, I think, I don't know, 10 motorcycles. I mean, basically the Japanese were totally open, you know, so yeah, it's a very true story. Yes, I, I remember that because to be honest, I was one of those, I was at that age where, you know, the 80s was kind of the decade that I became, you know, of age. Before that, I was kind of listening to my brother's record collection. He was into prog rock because he was seven years older. So he was into, yes, Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, um, Barkley, James Harvest, and the solo work of, you know, members of Yes, like Rick Wakeman. So he was very into that world. But the 80s came along. And I, you know, I have to confess, I was one of those whingy lefties who went that way. And you were there on the scene with the police. And, and it was kind of an interesting period because you, you obviously will remember it very well because there was such a political divide during that period, wasn't there, with, with sort of what the charts... There was kind of the mainstream charts that we remember well with that kind of Trevor Horn-esque production and Spandau Ballet and um, Duran Duran and Sade. And then there was the kind of the other side, which is the John Peel side, and that was the kind of the Red Wedge Socialist Workers' Party. And then you were there in, in the mix of this kind of kind of making things quite exciting didn't you which you did you kind of enjoy that kind of well I I found England very interesting because there was a lot of things going on but the music business was confused so in 77 when the punks were really sort of perking up I I was broke so the fact that I was broke and they nobody cared about them meant that they paid attention to me, you know, so I sort of gravitated towards the punks because they would take my phone call, basically. Whereas the regular music business by this point had, you know, basically written me off. So I got involved with the punks and was excited about the fact that they were basically challenging the system, mainly because the system didn't accept them, you know, so Mm -hmm. they had no choice but to challenge it. Uh, So the police really were, were, the best of both worlds in a sense they could play their instruments but they also were of this sort of new generation wanting to change the system because the system wasn't accepting accepting them either and uh you know we started succeeding and get a lot of attention and it was after that that things like spandau ballet and duran duran started coming along but yeah there was a lot of politics involved in the sort of music you know it wasn't just about music you know people were not singing just love songs so a lot of lot of the lyrics and the things that you sang about were things that had to do with politics and what was going on in the country you know so from that standpoint it was it was a lot more interesting for me because i mean frankly you know just listening to one more love song was not particularly exciting although the one that really changed my life was probably roxanne which was very much a love song Yes, well, it's quite an interesting one because at the time, you know, we had, you know, and you probably can vouch for this, you know, there were gatekeepers. And in the UK, as you know, 
especially you know being American as well and traveling so much the UK is tiny isn't it it's an it's a tiny little place that you can put in your back pocket but it meant in that period you had these kind of like you had John Peel you had you know just a couple of other kind of DJs who were quite you know influential then you had these three music papers that came out weekly that Americans always go my god you had three weekly papers we had one magazine or two magazines and you know there was only so much content so you could just get stuff out there and every every little city and town in the UK had an alternative indie night or a punk night you know that you could just get on that circuit and so you could sort of spin around the country and sort of become quite something and and the, the police got picked up quite quickly on various ones including the John Peel session which obviously gives you a lot of kudos at that time doesn't it well the uh, initially the first records that were played by John Peel that, that I was associated with were bands like Chelsea the Cortinas it was the thing called Step Forward Records, which I did a kind of a joint venture with Mark P from Sniffing Glue magazine. Right. Because the police initially were not accepted at all in England. We had to go to America first, start getting some action in America, where then the people back in England started paying attention. So my first um, successes really in the in the punk world were Squeeze to some degree. And then of course the 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 stuff that John Peel was playing, which was uh, you know the the real punk stuff. And then the police sort of came later on, but we had to succeed in America, get a little buzz going in America first before the people in England would pay attention. So yes. the, starting off with the police was very difficult yes. in the beginning. So we Because you're right, the, gatekeep, the gatekeepers decided that they weren't punks and the progressive people decided they weren't progressive either. So basically both doors are closed. Yes, but you can never, I mean, a good song is a good song. And when you hear that song or hit, you know it's you know it is going to be special and and there's only so many people can stop before the public will actually vote for their fee but the interesting thing with the police and the members several two of the members anyway and it was i did an interview with cherry vanilla and um yes and she's got quite an interesting life because she worked with main man and tony defreeze and she's kind of famous for her pr stuff with you know if you play a david bowie record in America, she'll sleep with the DJ. I'm not completely sure that's true, but she, she did say that she was a sex addict until she got to 40 and then came over to the UK minus a band. So how did you manage to sort of find yourself kind of being the kind of uh, the go-between on that sort of particular gig? Well, when I, I had gone to New York after I had run into a big problem with a, with a major festival tour called Star Trek in 75, which basically cleaned me out, basically bankrupted me or, or very close to bankrupted me. But when I went to New York, I, I came across people like Wayne County and Cherry Vanilla and Patti Smith and John Cale and, and was seeing this sort of underground scene happening at Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and all that. And I'd met Cherry Vanilla then. And I suggested then that she should come to England. And when she did come, she came with her boyfriend and they had no band. And of course I was having trouble getting police dates. So I said, look, I'll make you a deal. If you have the police open your show, Sting and Stewart will be your band members and you'll get them for free. <laughs> and uh, well, she actually had to pay them or something. She would pay them like 15 pounds a week each or something, you know, or, or a show. So basically it worked for her and it worked for them. So Cherry Vanilla's backing band was the police basically. But it, what, it, what it enabled me to do is I booked 30 some shows with Cherry Vanilla because Cherry Vanilla had, she had a kind of a credibility. She did work with David Bowie and she did, she was this sort of iconic character and she was very good at selling herself. 
So you could take a wild picture of her and, you know, promoters would take a shot, you know, and the police would open the show. So the police would do half an hour set, then Sting and Stewart would join her band and they would do their set. So uh, I ended up with 30 shows for the police by booking Sherry Vanilla. Yes, well, that was that was quite something. And that, and that sort of leap between that period and then, you, you, you know, because... Because I've been doing a lot of interviews, especially with these 80s bands, and most have a five-year narrative. They get together, they have that honeymoon period, they make a single, John Peel plays it, they get the John Peel session, the first album, things are going well, the second album, often the band isn't doing so well. There's a bad dynamic, and also there's a lack of money. And the other thing that everyone often says in the UK is that we go to America, we do a tour, and then I know what they're going to say, this, that we came back and we broke up. So you managed to get the police to sort of tour a bit of America. I know it wasn't a huge tour, but obviously that was, that was you know, this is still the 70s, which is, is kind of a time when, you know, I know we had the Beatles and, and the Stones and, and, you know, that period, but the 70s, there weren't a lot of massive British bands doing America very well, was there? Well, there, were the, there was the Led Zeppelins and the, you know, Black Sabbaths and all that were the major shows, you know. But remember, with the police in England, I just couldn't get arrested basically. No one would pay attention. And my brother Ian had, had gone to America and I had helped him get a job at a booking agency there. So I said, look, you know, the Laker Airways had this 75 pound ticket to America. So there were three guys in a roadie. And I thought, well, you know what, I could come up with enough money to pay for them to get to America. So let's go do a tour in America because nobody, nobody there knew who they were. Yeah. And, um, Nobody would pay attention in England. So we went to America. You know, we went to America in, what, 78. And that kind of got a buzz going. And they played two shows a night for five weeks or something. And it really honed the group. And when they came back, all of a sudden, I think going to America made people in England pay attention. And by that time, I, I had made a deal with um, A&M Records to put out Roxanne, and uh, which, which really didn't do anything in England. But it, it did percolate. And got to a couple of musicians who thought that, you know, they, there was something there. And so it, it's sort of the seed was planted. Then you added the American tour. So people started paying attention. So that sort of got the ball rolling. But I had, I had to go to America with them, which was the same thing I did really with Renaissance and the Climax Blues Band, who had the same problem in England. Nobody paid attention. And I went to America, got some action there, then came back to England, you know. And all of this I talk about in the, in the memoir that I've just put out, which is really like I say, was trying to find some way to make something happen. You know, if you can't do it one way, do it another. Yes. But then and going to America was one of those ways. But with an artist, I sort of realized, you know, that it's probably a bit of a fantasy. I mean, these aren't people who are on the X Factors. They're going to be playing gigs. They're going to be playing art centers and the punk clubs. But then you really have to need, want it, aren't they? You know, I mean, there aren't that many artists that really want it because most of those bands, again, I mentioned about the bands I've been doing from the especially the 80s is that they kind of then end up just getting the regular job or doing various other things and music becomes a sideline there's only a few people who where there is no plan b you know I'm thinking people like David Bowie Lemmy from Motorhead you know people like Sting Bono you know they're people who are so focused so when you know those guys go to America and they're playing and and you know you play and you think great we've got a gig and they're going it's just brilliant and it's like the only problem is there was only four people in the audience. Most people at this stage would think, you know, I might go back to college and do teacher training. <clears throat> four people is quite something, isn't it, for a, for a band to say, no, we're still going to play our set. 
Well, I think with the case of the police, they were on a five five week tour and they they had another place to go the next day. You know, they were on tour, so they couldn't very well decide they're going to go home and, you know, be become a college professor or something. But yeah, I think two great ingredients, two very important ingredients to making something happen were the real desire to make something happen. And by hook or crook to get out there and play and do your best, whatever you can. Okay. Stuart really wanted to make it. Sting really wanted to make it, you know, and the other thing is a very positive attitude to always look for, you know, the reason why something can succeed versus the failure, which would, I would say would, is the great uh, tribute to Jules Holland. I could throw out a crazy idea to Jules and he was predisposed to say, okay, let's do it. You know, but I had a lot of acts that I had worked with over the years that you could throw out an idea to them and they would go, Oh, gee, what are my friends going to say? Oh, maybe that's a mistake. You know, they would look for the reasons why it wouldn't work first. So I would say a positive attitude and a, and a burning desire to make it are very crucial. And then of course you have to have some decent music, you know, but some people always say, well, it's about the music, man. Well, you know what? It isn't really just about the music. It's about the attitude and the willingness to get out there and do it. Yes, and take risks. I mean, you know, luckily, David Bowie was my first, you know, single, my first love and all that. But I realised that his work in the 60s, if it wasn't for what he did next, would have just been put in a cupboard and just kind of slightly forgotten about as quirky. So he obviously had that sort of five, six year period of just kind of trying anything to make it work. And then hooked up with Angie and Tony DeFries and a few other people and, and it sort of came together. But with your, I mean, because you've got this kind of background of obviously being in Beirut, working with, you know, Wishbone Ash, then you have this amazing non-world tour, but, you know, with Lou Reed, who, who I remember, you know, I've read bits about, you know, um, him being in the toilet for three days. I mean, <laughs> at this stage, you know, most people would have just, I mean, you're not that old either. Most people would have said, you know, this possibly isn't working out. Did you, did you ever have any doubt of thinking, you know, having that kind of voice or your dad saying, you've had a go, son, but frankly, you know, your track records is, is going to be, you know, it's perhaps not lining up here, you know, or did you just have an absolute, you know, a, a single-mindedness? Well, I guess I would probably say I had a single-mindedness. I mean, my father did, in the very early days of Wishbone, before Wishbone got their first record deal, you know, his attitude was, well, why don't you get a real job first, learn some discipline, and then, you know, go out on your own, you know. And uh, I, I really thought, well, you know, I, at least I know what I like. And that was really the, you know, and I liked what the music that Wishbone Ash were playing, and that was enough for me, you know. So I'm not a freak, so if I like it, it must be decent, you know, so... Mm -hmm. I had kind of faith that I could do it. And, and the other thing is, is that I really didn't know what I didn't know very much, basically. So I just basically went and did it, you know, because I did, if, if I was more educated, I would have probably said to myself, well, no, this is just going to be too difficult. But because I really had no clue, I just went for it, you know. And yeah. uh, I would say probably the same, the same with the police later is that I was in the music business. I didn't know what else I was going to do. And there were these other bands and the, the punk bands who were paying attention, you know. And it just so happened that the fact that the punk thing was happening at a time when I was in, in financial trouble, it worked out very well because basically the thing about the punks was everybody wrote them off. Everybody wrote me off. Mm. So we were like two peas in a pod, you know. And 
So one naturally gravitated to the punks. The other great thing about the punk music thing was, is that it didn't require a lot of money. People would go make a single in an afternoon, you know, for a couple mm. hours, they would cut a single. You didn't need a lot of equipment. It was really, it was not about all this big entourage and all the equipment you had. It was really about just getting out there and do it. I mean, a lot of the bands that I worked with, I mean, some of the players had literally only played for a few weeks. You know, I had one <laughs> band that the, the drummer said, well, he bought a drum kit. He never knew how to play. The next day you joined the band, you know, so <laughs> it was literally, fly, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. And it didn't matter that you weren't a great musician or not. You just really had the chutzpah to get up there and do it. You know, yes. that, that was kind of exciting. Well, I, I, I noticed a lot of the roster of your bands that you went on to work with, especially in the 80s. There were some quite tricky characters, not tricky, but, you know, they, they had issues and, and various stuff, which we could get onto a bit. But, um, yeah, you know, you know, you didn't go for the easiest path. You know, they, they were people who had, you know, problems and issues and probably a bit of a, ch uh, a tricky childhood. So you, you obviously kind of work comfortable you didn't always chase the money directly and too obviously by working with people like the you know there was doctor and the medics wasn't there you know you worked with them for a while and the wall of voodoo and people like that who you know i've done interviews with all these people and they they were like wow you've had some quite tricky moments haven't you in, in their personal life and they're and they're kind of quite chaotic at the same time so you obviously attracted to people who are a little bit on the kind of outsider of of this sort of scene as well well I, I think part of the reason is because they're probably more interesting <laughs> or they're more image conscious i mean you take a band like the cramps you know you take a photograph of the cramps and it's obvious that they're different from you know 90 percent of the other groups that are out there um and you know unfortunately in their case i mean they were so off the you know off the beaten track in a sense and so different that they considered everybody who was in business must be a crook you know so it was very difficult to have a relationship, but they were they were challenging and fun and they were exciting and different, you know. So I think, yeah, I was I did gravitate to the sort of the strangest looking groups. I mean, Jim Scafish with a nose that came into the room before he did, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Cramps and Lords of the New Church. And, you know, a lot of these bands were really pretty crazy, but they also were a lot more interesting and in a way, a lot more marketable because of they were interesting but there was also the problem that because they were crazy some of them that they would break up very quickly or you know go off the deep end you know i mean wall of voodoo was one of my favorite acts you know stan ridgeway i think is one of the most talented guys out there but he was one of these people that you know you just never really knew what he was going to do yes well i did an interview with is that one of the brothers, Bruce Morland, who recently, and, um, you know, he's an amazing character, and he was there in, in the band in the early days, but sort of had huge amount of addiction problems and, and sort of ended up sort of, God knows what he ended up having to do to survive. But, you know, he's now got himself sorted and doing solo stuff. But I kind of realised that, you know, his childhood and, and stuff was not easy. And, and I, I guess a lot of those people... I don't know, I remember this guy, a woman called Jane Casey, who was part of that Liverpool scene, you know, from the early, uh, the late 70s, you know, Eric's, and she said, you know, we, we all sort of wore our neuroses on stage, you know, they were all very damaged kind of individuals who were just very creative at the same time and did these kind of crazy things with Bill Drummond and Holly Johnson and the guy from The Lightning Seeds and, you know, Julian Cope. So Liverpool, you know, I suppose, you know, those artistic, I mean, it's a cliche, but at the same time, that 
kind of can occasionally produce something quite brilliant and unusual, unlike trying to sort of work out a formula of how you're going to write that hit single that's going to give you a pension plan. Yeah, you know, let, let, let's be honest. You have to be a little bit crazy to walk on stage and imagine you're going to appeal to people, you know. I mean, the normal bank clerk, you know, you say, go, I'm going to put you on stage and you're going to sing. You probably freak out, you know. So you've got to be a little bit, you've got to have a little screw loose to think, well, I can do it, you know. I'm going to walk on stage, especially some of these bands. I mean, some of these players, you know, had, had hardly could play their instruments, you know. And to get up there and say, okay, you're going to be the bass player in this group and you, you, you don't even know three chords, you know. Yeah. So you have to be a little crazy to do it. But that craziness can also be what bites you in the butt, you know. So in a way, you have to be kind of lucky. In the case of the police, I was very lucky that you had guys that were pretty wild and adventurous, but they also were really good musicians and, and were thoughtful people who you could make something happen with, you know. But there were there were bands like the Go-Go's in America, you know, five girls, you know, you look at them and you think, wow, they're five girls. What a great marketing gimmick. And they write their own songs and they sing their own music. And But they're not great musicians. But does it really matter? You know, yeah. but they had the energy, you know, and they had the excitement to get up there and do it, you know. But when they started, they could hardly play their instruments either, you know. So that's part of the whole mystique, really, of the music business in the, the whole punk era was you didn't have to be a great musician. You just had to be able to get up and do it. You know, yeah. that was what was exciting about it. Because when you was when you well, obviously it started at that point, there'd already been the establishment, which was very much that prog world and Deep Purple and you know Emerson, Lake and Palmer with their fantastic trucks and their Persian rugs. So you know, being a, an outsider in that must have looked quite intimidating. Or how do you how do you join that club? But then meeting someone like Malcolm McLaren and seeing someone like that work in the system with the Sex Pistols did that give you a little bit of confidence of ah okay because you're not going to get hold of Peter Grant say or you know Colonel Tom Parker but you know to learn much because they're probably going to be isolated away with lots of bodyguards whereas Malcolm you know was this kind of slightly crazy situationist who was kind of creating these kind of dramas and sort of yeah you know being well what I when I met Malcolm I assumed he was managing a rock and roll band you know the same I assumed the Sex Pistols were a band that wanted to get out and play, which in fact they were, okay? Malcolm McLaren, however, was much more interested in getting press. So what I learned from him was, the more outrageous you are, the more crazy you can make something seem, the more you're likely to get attention. So I would say with Malcolm, I, I kind of learned this whole idea of, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, you know, I mean, you take a picture of Johnny Rotten, he definitely looks different from, yeah. you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, right? <laughs> um, and they did crazy stuff. And, you know, I mean, I, I took them to uh, doing a show in Holland, you know, and uh, I had chats with the band and I, they, were, they were pretty convinced they wanted to be a band, but Malcolm McLaren was into press. He really didn't want them to play. He didn't want them to be a band. He just wanted them to be outrageous. So I, you know, I mean, I, I don't really rate him as a manager because I think he was, but he was a brilliant strategist for getting press. Yes. And that, uh, that's something one could learn from, you know. Um, and at that stage, had Sid joined the band or was he still sort of just hanging about? Launching? No, Sid, Sid came into the group later, basically because he couldn't play. He was crazy. You know, so he he was he was a guy that generated press. 
So Malcolm really understood about getting press, but he was not particularly interested in the band becoming a band. In my case, I was interested in the band having hit records and touring and selling out stadiums. You know, that was where I was coming from. But we could use the press, you know. And when I saw the three guys with blonde hair, you know, I realized that was a great visual image, taking them to India to perform it like, you know, in a, where no band had ever played before. We yeah. would go to Egypt and have dress up Sting like Lawrence of Arabia with a galloping across the pyramids in the background, you know. So, you know, all of these sort of visual images help to give prestige and glamour to the police. But the music also carried the day. You add those two things together and that's why they became so big, you know. Yes, so one could learn nice. from Malcolm, but you, I, I don't think you could say you learned from him about how to manage a band and how to get shows because I would go up and offer him shows he basically would throw me out of his office and say, don't you realize that I, I, you're ruining my rap because I'm <laughs> telling everybody they can't get gigs and you're getting him gigs. Get the hell out of my office, you know. <laughs> yes, this is quite tricky, isn't it? But then, you know, there's only a few people, there's probably more, but I know there's people like Alan McGee who came along in the 80s. He had a fanzine. He started a little club called The Living Room. Then he did, you know, Creation Records. And, you know, they were going, you know, they were just very, you know, indie and John Peel-esque and the NME. But, you know, it took him about 10, 15 years before things really developed from, from sort of that period. But you, you know, with the police, they were already kind of major players. And then you start a record label, which seems as if you haven't got enough to, to sort of focus and, and sort of think about. How did, how did you get the kind of drive and energy to do this? Well, I, I looked upon it as a way to... I mean, when we brought the police to America, for instance, we did not want to support, become a support band. So you needed to have bands to open the show, basically, you know. So in a way, I could use the record company to sign up acts and help, help the scene go along and help build the scene. Because what I recognize is the police would get bigger if the scene got bigger. And I had to kind of ally myself and, in effect, lead the scene if I had to um, as a way to help the police get bigger. So they were sort of like the vanguard and creating a record company, actually like, you know, all the bands that opened for the police were really record company acts or either my brother Ian was booking or I was, you know, the Go-Go's did the, one of the big tours with the police, you know. So I needed acts to open for the police, but I also wanted to make the scene happen because the scene helped the police happen. Right. So I looked upon it as a combination of things, you know, so you know, did it mean that I kind of flitted back and forth between England and America? And, you know, could I have paid more attention to the record company or, you know, to whatever? Yeah, possibly, you know, so you can't, you can't be everywhere all at the same time. But overall, it worked. Yes, absolutely. But, but, you know, you, you do, you are striking gold at this stage, aren't you? Because you sort of sign REM, who sort of then becomes the one of the biggest bands in the world has one of the greatest kind of record deals after you know IRS and and so you you obviously have that kind of touch at this stage to sort of see magic because because they come from Athens Georgia now there's another band I've, I've interviewed there called the I think um pylons I think they're called they just had a reissue and and they they were very angsty about their art and you know, I've done an interview with two of the members. They broke up. Do you know why? Because their manager said, I've got you a support spot, support slot with you two. And they were like, 
we don't want to support you too. We're going to break up. That's just it. Our, in, our artistic uh, you know, credibility <laughs> is more important. Than I, I know, I know that the way of thinking. You know, I had an artist called Tim Buck Three, who was one of my favorite artists. Okay, it was just it was a guy and his wife basically, Pat McDonald and Barbara McDonald, and they wrote a song called "The Future's So Bright, I Gotta Wear Shades." Yeah, which was a very clever song. It's actually about atomic, about an atomic bomb, you know, but I don't think anybody ever twigged that. But I got, it was the perfect song for Ray-Ban eyeglasses. And I got approached by Ray-Ban offering me a million dollars to license the song for a commercial. So I go to Pat McDonald with the good news. Pat, we got a million dollar deal here for the your song and, you know, my deal was he he made half and I would make half, you know. So you're going to get half a million dollars. You can buy a house. He pleaded with me. No, don't make the deal. No, you can't sell my song. It's my baby. And he went off. And I had the right to place the song. And I, I, I kicked myself ever since, you know. I finally agreed I would not license the song. And of course, then Ford Motor Company comes the next year and offers me eight hundred thousand. I think we turned down over three or four million dollars on that one song alone, you know. <laughs> and you know, Pat McDonald still isn't rich, you know. But that would have made him happen, you know. I mean, yeah. later on, I, I had uh, another song where um, I used a commercial to make the song a success. It was Desert Rose with Sting. The record company refused to put it out as a single. Uh, I thought it was a hit. Sting thought it was a hit. But the record company said, well, it's got an Arab voice on it. We don't know who he is. And we love the song, but it's not a single, you know. So I made the deal with Jaguar commercial, with Jaguar to make a commercial um, because the British and, and the French decided they would, they would put the song out, but they needed a commercial. So we used a Jaguar car in the video. I'm looking at the video thinking, wow, we made a car commercial here. So I call up Jaguar. They, they jumped on the song, released it as a commercial, which then got radio interested. And then they called the record company and cut a long story short, the record company was forced to release the single and it became a huge hit, but it was done through a commercial. Right. So a commercial can help something happen if the product happens to be cool, which Jaguar cars was, you know. Yes, because um, I did. I did hear one of your uh, uh, sort of piece that you you said recently um, that you looked at yourself. You were kind of not quite apologised, but you said you looked at yourself as the butcher and your your band or client as as a sort of like the product, and you could just which bits can I sell to to maximise it? Can they get into film? Can they get into television? Can they do commercials? Which is it's quite a graphic image that isn't it really? Which you must you must when you have those moments, do you think God oh, this is going to really wind up the liberal lefties? <laughs> I think the butcher analogy is, is it's actually very accurate because these days, if you look at some of the bands that are out there, you know, I mean, they're selling sneakers, they're selling, you know, whatever you can sell, basically, you're selling, you know, you use your brand. It's thinking brand, you know. Yes. Um, and, you know, in the days, I think probably what, what actually changed that was Desert Rose, you know, an artist of the stature of Sting doing a commercial, which is such a huge success. And remember, that commercial also saved Jaguar cars, who were about to go broke, you know. 
So I think that kind of changed people's attitudes to think, well, you know, as long as the product is cool, then you can associate yourself with it, you know? Yes. But uh, I, I did look at the bands as a, well, if you can sell records, you could probably sell t-shirts. If you can sell t-shirts, well, you can sell other things as well. You know, why not? You know, when and you a lot of rock and roll bands, they have a, you know, let's say a window of opportunity, maybe only three or four years. So make as much money out of it as you can, you know. Yes. And what was your relationship like? Because REM obviously were quick learners and they were very good at sort of um, getting good management. And there was Bernie, is it Bernie Downs who was their kind of legal advisor? Bertus Downs, yeah. Bertus. I mean, did you, I mean, because you were both at that stage pretty I mean, I know you had your, your experience with Wishbone Ash and your sort of that tour and, and, and all the other stuff, but your record label was still quite new at that stage and REM were quite new. Did you sort of look at each other as kind of like, God, this is the start of our amazing journey. Who, who knows where this is going to go? I just wondered what that kind of dynamic was. You know, Well, what, what REM was not really the beginning of IRS Records. I mean, the really IRS Records was considered a joke until the Go-Go's went to number one. And they were the first all-girl group to have a number one album in the USA. And I think they still hold that, that, that position. I mean, there have been a lot of singles that were number one, but no girl group, you know. Um, when the Go-Go's happened, uh, R.E.M. were building slowly, you know. And the story of R.E.M. was really a very unique one. And, and they were the only act on IRS Records to actually fulfill the full, you know, six-album contract. And it was the last album that actually became the big one. And then they were free of their contract, you know. And I tried to re-sign them, but the money got so crazy that if I finally, they, they came to me with a deal that was so big, I just looked them in the face. I looked at Burtis Downs in the face and I said, look, here's my advice. Get out of my office right now. Go straight to Warner Brothers. Sign that deal before they change their mind. It's the best record deal I've ever seen. And I can't compete. Yes. And that's what they did. They went to Warner Brothers, got an amazing record deal. And uh, the rest is history, you know, but they they helped IRS become a very important label. But it was really the Go-Go's that opened the door in the beginning. Yeah. But the first band we released in America was a British band called the Buzzcocks. Right. Who wrote perfect three minute songs. Yeah. They were perfect. So why did you then sign people like Doctor and the Medics? Um, because they were slightly of a novelty factor. And, and what did you see in them that made you think, oh, I, I can see some potential with this? Well, like everything, you know, I think the, the story of IRS Records was that as time went on, in the beginning, nobody paid attention to us. They thought we were a joke, you know. They thought this punk thing was crazy and never would happen. You know, the new wave was, was a silly notion that it's going to all disappear. And then it all started succeeding. You know, the Go-Go's went to number one. You know, you had big hit, hit acts. MTV started happening. Um, you had acts, you know, that came along, whether it be Duran Duran or Adam Ant or whoever, you know. So it was no longer that the, the new wave, the, the punk rock generation was failing, you know. Um, you now had hit records. You know, Billy Idol went off to become a star, you know. Yes. So all of a sudden there was competition. So I could no longer go to a club and I would be the only person there willing to, willing to sign an act. There'd be 10 other people there all competing, you know, the Warner Brothers of this world and the big companies who had a lot more money than I did. So you had to sort of look around and try to find things that would help 
you know, and, and in order to build the label, you had to add people, which meant you had a bigger overhead. And you began to get sucked into some of the rules that, you know, the big companies had. You know, you had staff, you had to give them bonuses every year. When Christmas came around, they want to know what, what they're getting extra for Christmas, you know. So you start having to be no longer the, the, the revolutionary, you know, starting from scratch. You're now becoming part of the establishment, you know. So you look for things that are going to work. Mm. And Doctor and Medics looked like it could work. Uh, and it was one of those acts that my British, uh, my, my guys in England had come across and thought it would work and it would put numbers on the table. And so we signed them, you know, um, some of the acts we signed later on in the story of the, of the, of the record company, we probably wouldn't have signed at the beginning, you know, when we didn't have uh, any of the pressures of a lot of staff to feed and, you know, I mean, the staff want to get paid, you know, you got to pay the rent, you know. But the interesting thing with, with that band, and I suppose it was kind of curious because I did an inter interview with Clive. He was, you know, a very you know, amusing character and a funny life, you know, because he, he was part of that nightclub called Alice in Wonderlands, which was that sort of slightly new psychedelic kind of movement that happened. It was tiny, though, and none of the bands kind of ex expanded out of London. They just played a lot of gigs and went nowhere fast. But he, he has a story which sort of amused me that you listen to the record and went, you need a hit, you know, there's no hits on this record. Get out there and get me a hit. And then that's why they did Spirit in the Sky. And it was like, thank God, thank you, you know. So you obviously have an ear for sort of what works, but also ability to be very honest with your artists when you think, guys, you know, this is great, but frankly, not even. Well, I it. think, yeah, honesty is something that, you know, I don't know that it's always done me a good service, you know, because I sometimes an artist doesn't want to be told that they don't have a hit, you know. I mean, there's a famous story of me and Duran Duran, you know, a band I actually really liked. I liked them and the music. And, you know, we actually signed a management deal, which I think was the shortest management deal I ever did. And then they asked me how much money I could get for the record, you know, and I basically decided I better lie because the money that I knew they could get was going to be way too low. So I exaggerated and said, well, you know, we'll get you 2 million pounds. Turned out, of course, that wasn't a big enough lie. And the next day the group calls me up and says, well, we don't think you should be our manager. You don't believe in us. <laughs> they, <laughs> they thought I should, I should get 5 million pounds, which of course they did not get. But anyway, the, the reality is that, you know, some artists really don't want to be told the truth, but sometimes you've got to tell the truth, you know, because, you know, if you're going to, put money behind something and it doesn't that they don't have the goods and you don't believe in it yourself you can't really talk other people into getting behind it either you know yes. so if i'm going to talk cbs records or AM records or whoever into backing something i should believe in it myself so sometimes you've got to push the artist to do the right thing yes but it's interesting in your book because because you know a number one here most people would really make that a thing in your book i don't think you even mention this in your book do you you must have just went, oh, I forgot that. That's just a, just a number well, one hit. Well, the, the other thing is, is that, you know, I've been in the music business 50 years. Yes. And you can't mention everybody with any, you know, otherwise the book would be way too long and too boring, you know. So and, and I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe there's room for a second book. I mean, I've also toyed with the idea of, you know, letting the, the first book come out and then a few, you know, a year later say, well, you can get the full unabridged edition you know for a special limited edition and then you'll have doctor and the medics and some of these other bands that are it should be in there you know 
Yes. I mean, there were other British bands that I really loved that did not really make it. And I sometimes scratch my head and wonder, well, why? You know, was it my fault? Was it their fault? Was it just bad luck? You know, um, but some went to become very successful. I mean, one of the best ones was William Orbit and Torch Song. The minute I heard that tape, I thought this was a brilliant act, you know. And yeah. of course, I gave him his first job as a producer, and he's become one of the top producers in the world. He did the Madonna album. So his yeah. real forte was as a producer, songwriter, not really as an artist, you know. Yeah. The same goes for a couple of others that I came across that, that, you know, so I would see some, well, Jules Holland is a great example. I mean, I looked at him and I thought, there's just a great person, a great character who's got, who's got music, he's got talent, he's, got, he's a positive person. You know, he'd make a great TV presenter. So I got him to host the, the police show and then the tube and then look where he is right now. He's an OBE, you know. I know. Well, he, he, he is literally, quite frankly, everywhere. Because there was an interesting, there was an interview you did probably 1990 in Canada with probably um, what I could gather, a guy called Ed, who you must have worked with once many decades ago, kind of early business. And you were talking because the police had just finished as, as a as a sort of a band at that stage. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, you both, you were saying that's it. And then obviously the police then reform again. And it was kind of interesting because there was a documentary on bands reforming and, and it was Stuart who was, who was describing that experience of them coming back and saying, everyone was having a brilliant time apart from two members of a three-piece band, him and Sting. And then they had to have band therapy, which I thought was quite interesting. And when they were kind of honest with each other, Sting said, well, everything you said kind of does really hurt. So, so that was kind of, it was an interesting documentary. Do you sort of look at those kind of moments like, oh yeah, band therapy, that might've been a really good idea, but we didn't sort of do it at the time. Well, the reality was in the case of the police was that Stuart really wanted to succeed and he saw the police as his band. And he didn't really want anybody telling him what to do. Well, either did Sting. Sting wrote the music. He was the star. He was the voice. He wrote the songs. And he wanted the songs to sound a particular way. And he also got bored with some of the songs, you know, so he wanted to change the key. He wanted mm -hmm. to, you know, and Stuart wanted to be what they originally were, you know. And I was not involved in the Reformation tour, largely because I think a lot of the people around the band were afraid that we would all get on great and that, you know, they would lose their, their meal ticket, you know, so a lot of people just wanted to keep me away. And uh, so I, I heard a lot of stories about, you know, what was going on in the dressing room and this and that, which was partly what was going on when I was with the band. But the reality was there was an energy level and, and a lot of that energy was the band, the, the sort of hostility vibe within the group, you know, I think if it had all been a tame, quiet, everybody get along band, it might have been kind of boring, you know, so I guess part of me, I mean, the reason why I like the Cramps and Lords of the New Church and a lot of the crazier groups was the, the police be kind of wild was actually part of the reason it was exciting you know yes well I suppose you know I have to confess one of my favorite bands of the 80s were the Smiths and obviously you know things didn't go well they they seemed to not ever be able to have a manager and you know dynamically you know they were very strange well one member especially was quite strange so it sort of 
you can't have everything. You can't have someone who's going to go and sort of, I don't know, help old ladies cross the road while at the same time going on stage and doing their very odd behavior. Uh, you know, I mean, you know what it's like. You, you, can't, you can't have both things, can you? You can't have, you know, you, you don't want to look at their kind of Google search engine too much because you think oh my god what do you look at during the day or night it would yeah. be too much but with the classic because I, I i don't know if you ever saw it but there, i know i was listening to an interview with michael stipe recently and he was talking about um david essex and uh, and one of those classic songs that he did and, he, and and david essex was in a couple of really brilliant films in the early 70s and it's the sort of story of a sort of a, a rock star who goes kind of bonkers and and there's larry hagman's in it and and various people but you you know i don't say you went mad but you went and bought a castle in france which was quite the kind of the cliche thing to do isn't it when things are going really well you think you know what I need is a castle in France. So, so what was this kind of, what was the driving force behind that? Well, <laughs> I, I, I look upon it as one of my crazier moments. I mean, I had sold the record company and I had money in the bank, which was probably a mistake. And my wife was doing sculpting in France and I was killing time during the day and happened to walk by an estate agent and saw a castle that was very, very cheap. And the guy I walked in and I said, look, I want to take a look at that castle. And of course, he saw some American coming in with money and was probably thinking to himself, aha, you know, I got a sale here. So I, I kind of went around and looked at places and, and pretty soon I started getting the idea that, you know what, one could actually own a castle in France, you know, if it had been England, of course, it would have been too expensive, you know, but I kind of got the idea and I guess the bug side of got hold of me when I had bought it. Uh, my wife and I both looked at each other and we thought, what the hell have we done? We bought a castle in France and all my French friends were going, my just is crazy. You buy a castle in France, but it's nowhere. What are you doing? You know, and uh, but then I came up with this idea of a songwriter retreat, which was one of my biggest problems always, whether it be Wishbone Ash or whoever. A lot of the bands would just not have enough songs when they went in to make an album. Thankfully, it wasn't the problem of the police. You know, they Sting, Sting wrote hits, you know. Yes. But if you don't have a hit, you can waste your time. You know, Wishbone would do an album and they'd write 10 songs and they say, well, we're ready to do an album. Well, maybe there wasn't a hit. So I started these songwriter events where I would say, well, look, come to a castle in France and we'll put you in a room with other great writers and you'll write hits, you know, and it actually worked, you know, by taking people out of their comfort zone, take putting them in a kind of a mystical place like the castle. It, it got people to actually collaborate. And, you know, we had people like Carol King and John Bon Jovi and Cher and a, a huge mixture. I had Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks come. I had, <laughs> you know, the Go-Go's girls. I mean, Keith Urban came. And he wrote, he wrote the song there, or he started the song there that later changed his life. And he wrote a number one with two of the Go-Go Girls who we met at the castle, you know. So again, it was sometimes you, you put things together which don't belong together, but somehow they, they click, you know. Yes. So I think the safe route is not so safe, actually. No. So maybe that part of my success was that I was not very safe. I signed artists who were not safe, the police being one of them. I, you know, buying a castle and putting songwriters in it was definitely not a safe thing to do. <laughs> and, and a lot of my bands were not safe. So I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why, you know, it, it worked, you know. Yes. I mean, my biggest successes 
were all dismissed by the by the record company. Walk Like an Egyptian, for instance, with the Bangles, became a number one single all around the world, you know. But the record company told me it wasn't a single. So I had to kind of force them and cajole them into releasing it. And when they did, it just took off like a bullet because the public knew it was a hit. Same as Desert Rose with Sting, you know, the public knew, uh, but the gatekeepers didn't, you know. So, you know, I can, I can pat myself on the back and say sometimes, you know, I opened those gates, you know, which weren't supposed to be open. But then again, there were other times that, you know, I thought I opened the gate, but nothing went through, yeah. which is why I call the book Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, because you have to recognize the fact that not everything you're going to do is going to succeed. You know, even when everything looks like it's going to succeed and all the ducks are in a row and the, the you know, the stars align, something goes wrong, you know, and that's yeah. your one step back, you know. And so, like I say, you know, I've had successes and I've had failures, but the good thing about it was that, and I say this in the book, you know, that I learn as much from the failures as I did from the successes, you know, and yeah. sometimes more. Well, yes, I always remember see, see, there was a guy in America called um, Michael Rob, um, Reynolds. He he constructed, this was in the desert, kind of, um, they called earth ships. You know, he made them out of tires and bottles and cans. And he said he, he just wanted a bit of land. And he said he just wanted the freedom to fail because every time he had a little failure, the next time he built one of these things, he would correct those mistakes until he went, right, I've got it right. This is brilliant. We're off grid. We can live without any electricity and water. And I always loved that phrase of, of having the freedom to fail. It wasn't because you wanted to end up living homeless. You wanted to improve on the next thing. And, and it's a good philosophy because when you're at school, everybody's against any form of failure. It's like, okay, you haven't picked that up in the first week swimming, you can't swim. You think, well, give me a chance. I've only been doing it for a week. So, you know, that, that sense of kind of having to achieve things by the age of 16 or 17, or otherwise you're out, is, is quite damaging for a young person. But obviously, I mean, because there was, there was that 80s period, and I know, you know, because you'd come, because as we mentioned, you know, the 80s was very politically driven, wasn't it, at the time? And you, you embodied a spirit of really kind of enterprise and enthusiasm and excitement. And you said things that I know it almost destroyed Gary Newman's career when he sort of said some political things. Because at the time, if you didn't say what Paul Weller was sort of, you know, talking about and going left to center, you were, you were sort of going to be sort of put to, to the wilderness, but you managed to sort of navigate that. Did you, did you as a sort of a character quite, and because you're American, did that not bother you so much? Well, it, it, it wasn't actually easy because uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was, a sh there was a TV series called My England that Channel 4 was making. Oh, yes. And, and uh, I get a phone call one day from Jules Holland telling me, look, there's a guy up at the tube here you need to meet because I think he's going places. So be nice to him when you come up here. So I went up, I met this guy. I think a few months, a few weeks later, he ends up as the program controller for Channel 4 for youth programming. And he came to see me and he brought with me the political program controller at, who was creating this series called My England. And he wanted people to basically, he was going to give you a film crew for two weeks and you're going to go all over England and say what you liked about England and what you didn't like about England. And of course, all the players were, you know, political people or famous English people, you know. And he couldn't find anybody in the music business who would come out and say anything like, you know, free enterprise is good, you know. Yes. So, so he came to see me and he said, look, uh, and he grilled me, you know, what do I think about this and what do I think about that? And 
I thought he was asking me to, you know, advise him who he, who in the record music business he, he could get. And he said, well, I want you to do it. So I thought, well, wow, I'm going to have a, my own film crew and it's going to be, you know, eight o'clock at prime time on channel four, you know, wow, that's, a, that's kind of cool. So I said, yes. Then I told Sting. <laughs> <laughs> and Sting said, if you do it and you say anything about, you know, that free enterprise is good and making money is okay, you can't be my manager and I'm going to have to fire you. So I thought, oh my God, you know, I had to call up the Channel 4 guy and said, look, I'm sorry, I can't do this. You know, I mean, Sting has basically put his foot down and my staff at the record you know, company at the time were all like, oh my, Miles, if you go out and say free enterprise is good or anything nice about Margaret Thatcher, that you're going to get roasted. You're going to get killed walking. You, you can't go out of the house. So, you know, basically I, you know, I, I said no. And then Sting calls up and says, look, I'm, I've just sold my house and uh, I, the new house isn't ready yet. So can I stay with you for a couple of days? So he comes over and he's staying with me at my house. And uh, that night overcomes the program controller from Channel 4 who wanted to talk me into doing the show. And as he's pitching this, he may, he, Sting is listening. And of course, the conversation really is aimed at Sting. And so finally, at the end of it, Sting says, okay, Miles, you can do the show. I don't have to agree with what you say, but I'll fight for your right to say it. Nice. And I thought Sting at that moment was a great man. I thought, what a great thing to do, you know? So I did the show and lo and behold, it came out. I, I had this film crew for two weeks. I, I went up to Liverpool. I interviewed the farm and spoke at the conservative party conference and, you know, met all sorts of, you know, um, people in the industry and around us and that talking about why I liked England and why I didn't like England. And when it came out, it aired, it got huge ratings. And I had actually to go to Oxford street the next day. And lo and behold, I'm walking down Oxford street and over comes a kid running across traffic. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be mugged now. You know? <laughs> and he stuck out his hand and said, thank you for saying what you did, you know? And that night I actually, I, I met one of the members of the clash who said, you know, I, I saw the show and you know what? It made me think, you know, because it was a time that, you know, the whole idea of free enterprise was really what I was saying was, look, the punks are basically free enterprise people. They start their own record company. They start their own band. You know, they're not hurting anybody. They're the very archetype that they are free enterprise. They're all about free enterprise. And it like, it was like a light bulb went off in people's head, you know, and I think that it was part of, and actually I heard later that Margaret Thatcher loved that show. So <laughs> <laughs> I was very proud of that fact, you know, nice. but it's true that the British are very uh, creative. And, you know, when England finally said it was okay to make money, you know, England started succeeding and has become very successful. Yes. Well, you know, I suppose there's a whole other thing about new labor, which was the sort of, I suppose Thatcher's legacy, really, wasn't it? If you, but let's not go there too much. <laughs> but then, what's well, remember when I first got to England, you know, they had the three-day work week, and you had to have a bath in the same water for for five times, and you you took you a year to get a telephone, and you know, I mean, I can't I say that England was was really particularly easy for business in the beginning. No, I remember we used to, one particular winter, we used to get a kind of a, a timetable of when the electricity would go off and you'd be wait, you'd be in your kitchen with candles waiting for it. Oh, it's gone. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're going to sit around the table. So 
you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that, but um, it's true. But yes, but then what's kind of boggling, you get into kind of a lot of world music, which is quite like the North African stuff. And being one of those people who was obsessed with John Peel, any, <clears throat> anything he played, I would try and listen to and go and see live, like the Bundy Boys or the Four Brothers or Gregory Isaacs and all those kind of Sly and Robbie. But you, you get into this kind of world music, which then has a sort of a big effect when the Pentagon gets in touch with you as well, doesn't it? We, we, you know, trying to sort well, of- Well, the music that I was getting into was Latin music because my wife was from Argentina, number one. So I was seeing that a lot of the bands there were sort of bubbling up. So that was sort of interesting. And then of course, when I was in France, I heard this, what they called Rai music, which was a mixture of Arabic music and Western music. So it was like Arabic instruments. So it was like my youth growing up in the Middle East was now coming back to hit me in the rock and roll world. So it was like the rock and roll world joining up with the Middle East. And, and this music was really exciting to me. And I got Sting interested in it. And that's how he wrote Desert Rose. You know? And uh, so, I, so I started getting interested in what the music that was coming out of you know, Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and all of these places. And uh, I actually started signing up the big stars that were there. And, and the word kind of got out to uh, the people in the music business in America and the Recording Institute of America uh, had asked me to help on some of the problems with the, this, this, the Congress about getting rights to improve the rights of artists, you know, getting songs on the radio and whatever. Uh, and they knew that I had been involved in Arabic music. So when the Pentagon called up the Recording Institute of America and said, look, is there any American who knows anything about Arabic music? They said, well, there's only one guy. It's this Miles Copeland guy. <laughs> and you should call him. So I get a phone call from Donald Rumsfeld's office. And uh, the pitch was, well, look, we're, we've got all these programs, how to win hearts and minds. And will you tell us if they're good or not? And of course they had crazy ideas, which were totally counterproductive. And then I, I called back and said, look, um, you know, I think uh, I'm glad you want to do something that's positive, but these ideas are not good. And they said, well, come to the Pentagon, tell us what to do. Who's, who's going to pass up that? Yes, absolutely. This is, this so here is, I am, rock and roll manager. I put on my best Brooks Brothers suit. I head up to the Pentagon. I take the next flight to Washington. I'm going up there as straight as you could be. And I go into up the corridor of war, down the, down the Donald Rumsfeld section. And I'm brought into this room and a big oval table. And I'm basically, everybody introduced. They had people from the White House, people in the Pentagon, people in the State Department. And they said, okay, tell us what to do. So I told them. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know that it ever had any effect on them or not, because I think that the people that, uh, you know, the government changed and then they, they went around. I don't think they knew what to do. They, but they wanted to do something. But anyway, yeah, it was a very interesting sort of marriage between my days when my father was a CIA operative and, growing up in the Middle East, and now I'm in the music business, and now the, so the two come together, and I'm an advisor to the Pentagon, you know, who would have thought? You know? Yes, that must have been, that must have been kind of that walk of, you know, um, walking down those kind of steps, or walking down those corridors must have been extraordinary, because because what what's also bizarre, it, there, there was one particular band who were just kind of into, was it um, kind of, um, they called Jenna Torturers, 
this this, yeah. this this is alone i mean when you see a band like that and then you're sort of getting hits on you know radio one radio two you know everybody loves you know those kind of songs and and you know like you said you know the bangles and then you see something like that do you sort of go oh yes i can see the potential is it well, is it just a kind of a curiosity that you have part of it was as as the label grew and i became more in you know the competition got stiffer. You were looking for things further and further left of center. Mm-hmm. And you want to get attention, basically. You know, the first job of a marketing person or a manager or whatever is to get attention. If somebody doesn't hear the music, you know, you're not going to get attention. You know, if you look at the Beatles, the first thing I heard about the Beatles was it was four long-haired guys from Liverpool. The first thing I heard about the animals was that they didn't wash. Yes. You know, you look at a picture of Kiss, and you see these guys with painted faces, you know. You see that before you hear the music, you know. I mean, even, you know, Elvis Presley, with you know, he would, he would gyrate on stage. That's what you heard about first, you know. Um, Elton John, you know, you look at the movie of Elton John. It starts with him in rehab. You yeah. know? If he had been Mr. Nice Guy, Bank Clark type, you, he never would have made a movie, you know. So I was looking for the strangest left of center people. So I, I had this bright idea one day, let's start a label where we have the most outrageous groups in the world. So let's go out and find the most outrageous act. Well, pretty soon, the most outrageous act I could find was a group called the Jenna Torturers from Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. (laughs) The lead singer was a beautiful girl, actually, who by day worked in a morgue. Nice. And she would, you know, do... do, she would also get body parts for hospitals that needed a new heart or an eyeball or whatever, you know, or she would do, um, take bodies and find out why they died, you know? So I thought that was pretty interesting, you know? So by day she, here she is, she's working in a morgue and by night she's on stage. And of course the group, the stage antics were pretty wild. They were nailing men's genitals to to boards on stage. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty crazy. So I took one of my crazy staff members who was the, actually the drummer in Lords of the New Church and said, well, go to Florida and record them. You know, so he did. <laughs> and uh, we put out one album, but we could never find another group as outrageous as them. <laughs> so it became a, a one, one act label. And, uh, yes. you know, I mean, how, how do you beat that? You know, I mean, they would they would get volunteers out of the audience, come on stage, pull a guy's pants down and nail his scrotum to a board. And <laughs> I, 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 that was it, you know. And yeah. that was the that was the the, the all ages show. There was an X-rated show that I've yet to I've never seen. Jeezy crazy. So look, just one thing, because of you know, keeping it together, and you know, most people have that moment where they don't, because at one stage you you know, you've got, I don't know, a payroll of 200 people, you've got officers all over right, right the world. Was there ever a moment within that, you know, that you were thinking, God, this is too much for me. Three o'clock in the morning, I can't sleep. There's just so much that I don't, I'm not keeping a handle on this. I mean, did that, did that ever happen? Or did you always manage to just keep it, keep it going and, and sort of still? Well, be- I, I did not enjoy the bigger things God. I didn't enjoy it as much because you couldn't focus as much. And, some things didn't work, you know, so, you know, you expanded, but then I also, you know, I, I finally closed the Nashville office, you know, I closed the film company. Um, 
you know, we made 20 some films, but, you know, by the, then I look at it one day and think, well, you know what, this isn't really going somewhere. So I closed it, you know. So it's not like, you know, all of a sudden you close everything at once. You, you know, you, something you, it's like you, you trip once, you know, you fix that and then you go forward, you know. But I was always, um, you know, the management side was Sting, you know, when, when the police stopped, you carried on with Sting. Um, the record label, I continue to do, although the music business has changed now, you know. So, you know, I think the problem of, of, of a company growing is that you can actually end up where you left, basically. I mean, I was a revolutionary in the beginning, let's say. And you have a record company with two or three people, you know. And you were paying low salaries and you were signing bands for very low amounts. You know, 10 years later, all of a sudden you're paying a million dollar advances and you're, you've got 2,200 staff, you know, all of a sudden you can't make decisions the same way as flippant as you were back when you were a revolutionary. So now you have to make decisions based on, well, I need to pay the rent. So I've got to sign some people that I know will make money, you know, yes. which is more difficult because you can't always be sure you know one thing about the music business you know you don't know who's going to succeed you know so i my rule was always well as long as it's inexpensive you can take a shot and a lot of the early bands that i worked with really were not very like the rem were very inexpensive you know i mean the first album was i don't know twenty thousand dollars or something you know Yes, because the fact that you, for the first Police album, you actually presented it to Jerry Moss at A&M and said, look, this isn't going to cost you anything because I've all, already paid for it and this is the product. So basically, it's almost a no-brainer. I mean, looking back at that, that was kind of genius, wasn't it? Well, what, what happened was, and this is another rule I lay out in the book, if you make the answer yes to be easy, you're likely to get yes as an answer. If you make the answer no to be easy, you're going to get no. So if you go to a record company and say, look, forget about having to take a risk, forget about a big advance, forget about, you know, is this going to affect your budget? Just listen to the music. See if you like the music yeah. because it's yours. It's already paid for. There's no risk whatsoever. Well, the A&R guy now listens to the music and decides, hey, you know, I really like this. Whereas if I'd gone in and I said, okay, listen to the music but by the way it's going to cost you a million dollars half of his brain is going to be thinking wow a million dollars is this really worth a million dollars he's not going to really hear the music in the same way yes so i, I found thought... out that by making making the answer yes to be easy i got yes and it was the same pitch i made for irs records with jerry moss when i went to him and i said look i got a record label to start i got all these acts in england and I don't need any of your money. Just put out whatever you want, you know, and have your salespeople tell you what they can sell. And there's no risk. And he said, yes. If I'd again, I'd gone in and I said, you know, I need money. And he would say, let me hear the music. And of course, if he heard the music, he would have said no. You know? <laughs> so, so I didn't let him listen to any of the music. Yes, well, I, but I thought with that, you said you can have this, but you can't listen to it until you've agreed that you're going to have it for that first album. That, 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 was, that was for IRS records. With the case of the police, the only thing I had going for me was the quality of the music. There was no tour. There was no press. There was no nothing about the police. So I just said, look, I have to make the answer easy to say yes. So look, just listen to the music. Somebody tell me if you like the music. It's yours. 
It's an A&M record already. It's yeah. done. You know, just give me your highest royalty if it sells. If it doesn't sell, who cares? It's it, you, You've lost nothing, you know. So it was IRS records that I said, look, you can't listen to the music. That's the only caveat. It's free, but you can't listen to the music. <laughs> Which is quite something. Because I guess, I mean, I did an interview with uh, Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and I can see when they first started, the problem was there was three guys, and they were all third of the pan, band. But then when two of them left and it left Lemmy, he was kind of, he was Motorhead. And I could see the police always had that thing that there was like, we're all part, you know, this is all our band, isn't it? You know, there isn't one person with a slightly, you know, bigger percentage of who, who owns the name and who owns the music. So there, there was obviously... Always well, Sting, Sting made more because he had, but, but he shared the publishing to, to a degree, but he still made the lion's share of it. So he was going to make more money. But the, but the touring and the, ownership of the name and all that was owned by all of us you know so we were all we were all in it together basically you know so i think that that worked and the same was true of rem the go-go's for instance didn't do that and they that was one of the reasons they broke up is because charlotte caffey wrote the hits and made most of the money and kept all the publishing you know so publishing has been one of the one of the ways in which you know the 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 rich get richer and the the person who writes the song gets richer and uh some bands don't like that rem divided everything equally yes so if you were if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out you were probably in beirut at the time weren't you what, what would what would you say to that person now you know what kind of key you know couple of bullet points would you have just wanted to have whispered it in their ear even if they ignored it you know but you thought look here just listen to this the one thing i i would have done differently would have been number one is i would have pushed bands like wishbone ash to write more songs because i when i started the songwriter events at the castle you know one of the great writers that came said look if you want to have 10 great songs write 100 you yes. know and the reality was that, you know, when Wishbone would write 10 songs, they'd think, okay, let's make an album. Well, if there was no single, you know, you'd lose a year basically until you write the next album, you know? And I think that I was, it wasn't really until the police came along that where you had really big hits, you know, that were this killer songs, you know? Well, it was and I that. think that Wishbone could have been bigger if they'd had really had a killer song. And, I was and, gonna say, and I, in the case of the Climax Blues Band, for instance, when they finally did have a hit, which was couldn't get it right, it was me pressuring them. When they delivered the album, I said, guys, there's no single here. And I told you I would make this a hit record, but I can't do that with no single. You got to go write a hit or let me get you a hit. And then they, were, they wrote Couldn't Get It Right, which went to number three in America. I think it was top five in England or something, you know. But the reality was that I never had enough songs from most of the bands, you know. Yeah. And that was, a, that was a rule that I, should, I wish I had learned earlier. Well, I kind of, I, I sort of, when you listen to like The Wall of Voodoo, they've got a song called um, Mexican Radio, which is the first time you hear it, you think, Jesus, I want to listen to this again straight away because it's such a catchy song. It's just brilliant. But I did go and see Wishbone Ash many decades ago. Randy California was supporting them. Actually, Spirit, it wasn't just Randy, it was the whole band. And I have to say, Wishbone Ash live 
they did just kind of hit me with guitar solos after guitar solos. And you just thought, God, I wish, you know, like, yes, would write those odd ballads, wouldn't they? Like Wondrous Story or various other bits that they started to think we need a three minute song within this kind of triple album. But I suppose Wishbone Ash, the vocalist was never that great. And the song, they didn't say, look, let's write nine epic guitar songs and one really good ballad for, for both sexes, really. Yeah, I think the the rule really is, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And Wishbone never had a fantastic vocal and they never wrote a hit si single. Mm. So that, and and the only thing I could do really was to make them bigger by coming up with other ways, you know, by touring and touring and touring and putting them on with other bands that exposed them. And, you know, unfortunately, I, they they were they were a brilliant group, but were never never really had all the goods that were necessary. When the police came along and had all those goods, it was easy. I, I always say the police were were very very easy to make happen. Once they once we decided Roxanne was the single, and then Sting came out with "Can't Stand Losing You" and "Message in a Bottle" and "Every Breath You Take." I mean. <sighs> It was easy after that. It was, he, was, he was a hit machine. But it's interesting because Joe Boyd had the same problem with Nick Drake, didn't he? He'd been with various people like, I don't know, um, the Incredible String Band. Now, you never expected them to have a hit single. They didn't. But then, you know, Nick Drake just came along. You're thinking, these are great songs. These are lovely, but there's just not a hit there. You know, I shouldn't say that. People will hate me for it. But you know what I mean? There was nothing that really like, you know, when you hear a song being covered by, a Sting song being covered by someone else, you think, actually, this is their best song they've ever done, and it's a cover because it's Sting, because he does write that that thing, doesn't he? He has that, right. of, you know, because, and it's the same with the Beatles. Sometimes you hear someone cover, you know, a person's album, you think, oh, this is quite nice. And then there's one brilliant song, you think, oh, that's the Beatles, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it just has that lyric. And, you know, it's it's the thing, isn't it, between Sting, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and Nick Drake, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the the... The ingredients of a hit, you know, it, it's you, you can't you can't all of a sudden, you know, pull out a like a mathematician, you figure it out. Sometimes it just happens, you know, and in my case, you know, you would hear it, but sometimes people wouldn't hear it. Like like I like I say, Desert Rose or Walk Like an Egyptian were rejected. You know, Roxanne was rejected by the police. You know, they didn't <laughs> want to play me the song, you know. Um, so it, it's very hard to determine what's a hit. And, you know, I was watching a, a TV program the other day about Motown and, and they, they were going to turn down all sorts of songs that became classic hits, you know, my girl, you know, and things like you think, by God, that's a smash hit. But they were, they had to debate whether or not they thought it was a single or not, you know? Yes. So people in the business, artists included, often don't know. I mean, I've had many artists that would bring me in and say, look, here, here, let me play you my songs. Aren't they great? And I'd listen to them and think, well, actually, they're not so great. And then you tell the artist and they think you're an idiot because you, you know, you told them what they didn't want to hear. Well, of course, they weren't hits, you know. <laughs> but then every now and then you have one that is a hit. You know? Yes, absolutely. So nobody, nobody, you know, and that's why my title is, like I say, you know, two steps forward, one step back, because no matter how good you are, you can make a mistake. Yes, but just on the last point, because there's a great moment, you know, that when, you, you know, obviously it wasn't for you when you were doing your five act tour and, you know, it was, it all sounded very good. And then Lou Reed is um, in the toilet for three days, which I thought was a great, great moment. 
did you ever get to meet Lou Reed in, you know, in your sort of travels and just ever sort of explained, you know, just tell him that story? No, I, I, I'm always, I, I, I know John Cale. I've told John Cale, you know, who is the bass player in Lou Reed's band, but I never met Lou Reed. I just wondered, because it's such a great story, you know, like, oh, yes, he's in the toilet. It's like, oh, well, that's okay, I'll hang, you know, how long is that going to be, you know, washing your teeth, having a wee? No, he's been there for three days. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> that was one of the strangest phone calls I ever had. Yeah. <laughs> I knew I was in deep trouble then, you know. Yes, well, that was amazing. Well, I have absolutely loved the book. It's been a fantastic book, and I've really enjoyed sort of it. And I'm sure it's going to be a... You know, it's going to do the circuit, isn't it? It's it's a it's a great read. But thank you ever so much. And uh, yes, it's been it's been great over the, doing lots of interviews over the last five years. There's been a lot of people who who went, oh yes, I've you know either been on your label and stuff like that. So it's been it's been great to eventually meet you. So uh, yes, it's been good. Well, it's been nice talking to you. Yeah, and if you if you, if you can think of anything else you want to talk about, hey, I'm always open. Okay. I'm sitting here in LA, stuck. I can't travel. <laughs> yes, this is true. Anyway, look, take care and thanks again, Miles. This has been great. All righty. Take, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is how you finish an interview. I know I leave that in because it makes me laugh. It's slightly fumbling. I'm English. I'm uptight. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Miles Copeland for giving me the time for that interview. The book titled Two Steps Forward, One Step Back My Life in the Music Business. And that has just come out on Jawbone. Press, available from all good bookshops, online, all that kind of malarkey. Just Google away. You'll find it somewhere. Anyway, this has been, probably I've said this already, but anyway, I'll repeat myself, David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, Podbean, and iTunes. Anyway, have a great time. Stay safe.